you're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome again to another edition of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Wall. Uh, welcome. Um, hopefully you're having a good week, whatever you're doing. I'm hoping uh, wherever you're practicing medicine or pharmacy that uh, things aren't too overwhelming for you and, and you're having an okay week. Uh, today, we're going to uh, continue our, our run of non-COVID talks, and we're going to talk about a new set of guidelines that came out. Actually, the American Society of Addiction Medicine in February released a new set of guidelines on alcohol use disorder, particularly uh, alcohol withdrawal and how to approach it and I can tell you as an inpatient pharmacist um, I deal with this all the time and 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 if you work in hospital pharmacy my guess is you do too uh, one of the interesting pieces about this document is they do go into some detail about the fact that for mild to moderate uh, withdrawal uh, outpatient or ambulatory um, management is is absolutely reasonable and I would say that's something that's not only probably less expensive but in a world where unfortunately we are seeing a, a surge of COVID in many places and hospital beds are at a premium. If we can uh, manage these patients as outpatients, that, that's probably good all the way around the pack. So, so we'll be talking about that in a second. Again, as always, thank you to uh, CE Impact, who is the sponsors of, of this podcast. Please go uh, to CE Impact, uh, to their website. And uh, if you're going to uh, uh, survive the pain that is listening to my voice for 20 minutes, then please go get the CE that, 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 that makes up for it. Um, we are, you know, that's one of just many of a wide portfolio of CE options for pharmacists and for other healthcare providers that CE Impact does. And, and again, they're, they're a great organization. I think uh, you'll, you'll find the, the CE is, is, is well done, is timely, is accurate. And again, you know, you know, head to their website and check it out. Also, uh, as always, if you like this uh, podcast, be sure to like us wherever you listen to podcasts and uh, subscribe and get your friends to subscribe. And the more, the merrier, right, as we go along. Also, uh, very quickly, uh, the music that, uh, bed that, that leads into this uh, uh, talk, um, I should, I, I'm, I'm going to toot my horn a little bit, is actually my own music because I actually do do electronic music under the name Prophet of Jupiter. And please feel free to head over to my Bandcamp or SoundCloud page. Just type in Prophet of Jupiter and uh, you'll be able to listen to some of my more music and maybe download it, maybe like it. So anyway, so uh, we're going to turn our attention to, uh, to again, alcohol use disorder, particularly uh, alcohol withdrawal. It's been a number of years since uh, the, this uh, organization has come up with guidelines. So I think this was a, a welcome addition um, to what we know about it and a nice summary of the literature because again we just we uh, we see these patients all the time and I think we tend to get a little bit um, um, complacent when we deal with these patients because again especially if you work in a, in a busy primary care hospital you're seeing alcohol withdrawal all the time and you start to think oh it's no big deal they'll sleep it off and it's important to remember that that this can this can have serious or sometimes life-threatening consequences of, if not treated correctly so you know we, we should not we should not uh, uh, do our due diligence in, in reading the latest literature and knowing the best way to treat these patients so so it's a fairly large document um, and like most uh, clinical guidelines uh, they have kind of a summary document up front where they give all the recommendations. Uh, they do have a, a, a methodology uh, where, where they, you know, examine the the, the uh, strength of the evidence for their guidelines. Uh, they did not do it in a PICO type question format, which is kind of unusual nowadays. Most uh, clinical practice guidelines have a PICO format where they have clinical questions and then try and answer them. This was just pretty much your old fashioned. Here's our set of recommendations. Here's really the level that 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 we rec uh, evidence that supports our 
recommendation and that's really it. So, you know, nothing necessarily wrong with that, but it's something to kind of keep in mind. So, so the first part of the, the guidelines, they do talk about um, um, assessment of, of guideline, uh, assessment of alcohol withdrawal in particular. And, you know, is it mild to moderate versus severe? Uh, many of you who work in, in the hospital setting are, are well aware um, of, of numerous um Scoring scales out there, uh, probably the most common one out there is the CWA AR, um, which was uh, uh, been now in use probably for 15 to 18 years, I believe, in 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 the, in the treatment of alcohol withdrawal. Um, it was a study that uh, looked at a a symptom based triggering of of treatment for alcohol withdrawal versus what we did in the old days when I first came out of school, which was just to put people on scheduled benzodiazepines and put them on a scheduled taper over the course of three to four days, and that original study did find that that uh, that the CYAR patients who who were uh, being followed on a medical floor for alcohol withdrawal had a less sedation and a quicker time to being um, uh, discharged from the hospital. And that's one of the reasons why I think CYAR really became kind of the standard. And I think in almost all hospitals in the United States, uh, they use this as, as kind of assessment. And, and, and largely all it is is a, a symptom scoring scale. And if that scale uh, uh, really is is from uh, 10 to 18, that's where they'll start getting uh, um, uh, treatments. And if it's above uh, uh, 19, that usually indicates severe symptoms. And then uh, what's defined as complicated alcohol withdrawal is alcohol withdrawal with delirium or hallucinations or with alcohol withdrawal seizures, which again can, can op, op, often be life-threatening as you might under, might expect. So uh, so the first set of the uh, part of the guidelines just basically go through the, the evidence surrounding it and do recommend using some sort of alcohol withdrawal severity uh, score. It is important to keep in mind that that the CWA scoring system you know, is not going to work for everybody. If a patient doesn't understand English, for example, uh, it's obviously going to be difficult since it, since it requires you to ask patients questions if they can't respond to you. That's that's another issue. Uh, and, and a lot of times in my ICU, that becomes an issue because we have someone who's intubated and sedated, and we're still following CWA scores on them, even though they can't really answer any of the questions that 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 the CWA scores would have on them. So you can basically see if the patient's sweaty or, or anxious or tremulous, but that's really all you can do. So, you know, CWAR is certainly a great scale, and, and we should use it, and it should be the standard, I think, in many situations. But keep in mind that it, it isn't the, the, the way to go for all assessment of alcohol withdrawal. So, uh, you know, that, but that is something to kind of think about. Um, the next thing the, the guidelines talk about is uh, uh, once uh, you've kind of assessed their level of, of withdrawal, uh, can you manage them as, a, a, as ambulatory versus inpatient? And again, uh, this is not, I, I think we've all seen where people with kind of mild uh, withdrawal symptoms kind of tend, you know, can be managed as an outpatient, even sometimes by themselves. But this basically says that there is accumulated evidence showing that 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 ambulatory management of, of alcohol withdrawal can be done in mild to moderate withdrawal symptoms, uh, as long as the patient doesn't have a lot of other comorbidities and as and has you know good follow up. And of course, that's going to be key. Uh, you know, uh, this would not be a good uh, uh, thing to try in someone who, for example, is homeless and we can't get a hold of them to see how they're doing, or doesn't have transportation if they needed to get to an emergency room or something like that. So this would you. You know, ambulatory management of alcohol withdrawal, you know, does work. And again, the studies have suggested it works, but you really have to do it uh, in, 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 in the right patient population or uh, it, you're kind of setting yourself up for disaster, you know, basically. They do mention that, uh, you know, uh, really any qualified health provider and um, they don't actually call out pharmacists, but I 
wouldn't see any reason at all why pharmacists couldn't, under protocol, um, uh, monitor patients for alcohol withdrawal. Um, you know, again, it's 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 really just a, a question of talking to patients and having a protocol in place of what to do and, and things along those lines. So I think that's certainly reasonable to do. The other uh, uh, piece at this point that the guidelines do speak to speak to and something we're I think pretty good about at at Methodist and most hospitals is concomitant use of of uh, um, thiamine. I remember that that most many of these patients are thiamine deficient, and if they start uh, um, uh, taking a lot of carbohydrates in, they're at risk for something uh, developing Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome, which is a, basically a form of brain damage, which is uh, can be catastrophic um, as as well as. Um, can be catastrophic as 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 uh, well as as even patients who survive it may have long term disability issues, and it's a very simple thing to prevent by just basically giving a thiamine uh, 100 milligrams a day for three to five days, um, and that you know you can do it orally, you can do it in parenterally, however however you want to do it, it works pretty good. If you suspect the patient actually has Wernicke-Korsakoff's or not for not for prophylaxis, we usually tend to give intravenous thiamine at higher doses. There is some evidence to suggest that we probably underdiagnose Wernicke. Korsakoff syndrome in an inpatient setting. Um, we just think that the patient has, you know, you know, uh, if they're experiencing um, uh, focal de deficits or, or cognitive deficits, we tend to assign that to the fact that they've been drinking a lot and things like that. It certainly can be Wernicke Korsakoff syndrome. And since thiamine really has no side effects and is currently relatively inexpensive, you know, it's definitely one of those, you know, when in doubt, go ahead and just give them thiamine because you can't possibly hurt them for that. So then we move on to, to uh, uh, prophylaxis of uh, to prevent uh, the the involvement of of uh, um, withdrawal symptoms. And again, you know, as we all remember, probably from school, you know, the first 24 to 48 hours is when is when people tend to have you know the tremulousness and things like that. But if they're not treated, uh, then it can progress in the next set, you know next 24 to 48 hours after that. It's about 96 hours after the last drink to things like again delirium, uh, delirium tremens, uh, hallucinations, severe agitation psychosis and then you know, seizures and again it is you know it is possible to die from alcohol withdrawal so uh, um, and they do make they do they do make that mention in in the uh, um, in the guidelines so so uh, when they talk about uh, uh, prophylaxis for this um, they do reaffirm the fact that benzodiazepines really are the treatments of choice uh, for both uh, ambulatory and for inpatient treatment of, of or prophylaxis of, of um, alcohol withdrawal we have long experience with their use they're relatively safe as those things go um, and whether you're using a symptom trigger type of, 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 of scoring system like the Seaway AR or you're just starting them on a, on a dose of the drug and then titrating them down over the course of 48 to 72 hours. Either is reasonable to do. And again, we have you know many, many years experience with them. Um, I was always kind of taught and I usually tell my students to try to pick benzos that don't have active metabolites because again, if, if someone is an alcoholic, there's a pretty good chance that their liver isn't functioning all that well. And so perhaps, uh, you know, um, I'm sure many of the pharmacists out there remember the, the mnemonic lot Right, so for lorazepam, oxazepam, and temazepam, uh, we don't use temazepam for this purpose. So really, it's going to come down to either lorazepam or oxazepam. Not a lot of difference between the two of the drugs, except that oxazepam is only available orally and might have a slightly longer half-life. Um, I do know some experts in addiction medicine who feel that or uh, diazepam, even though it has an active metabolite, might be a preferred drug just because of its longer activity, and so that it decreases the need for repeat dosing. To my knowledge, that's never really been studied. 
need. So I think you, you pick one and, and you kind of go from there. Now, there are some people who, you know, either, you know, may have uh, uh, issues where they can't be on benzodiazepines, um, they have severe lung disease, or they're on concomitant opioids or something along those lines, uh, or that it isn't just working for them. So, you know, the, the, there has been some, some evidence in the last, you know, I would say, you know, 10, 12 years of other agents being used for, for uh, the tr uh, treatment and prophylaxis of, of, of withdrawal. Um, the one that I want to call out, particularly the guidelines actually call out quite a bit throughout the, the guidelines is gabapentin. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm not trying to contribute to the, to the, uh, the, gr the gross tonnage use of gabapentin in the United States because Lord knows that, that, uh, that, that we've uh, uh, seen a lot of that. But there is actually fairly good data that shows that, especially for mild to moderate uh, um, withdrawal, uh, gabapentin actually works quite well. And the guidelines do call out that, that gabapentin not only works well, for withdrawal, but it's also a pretty good drug for opioid use disorder. So, you know, especially if you're considering continuing the, the uh, uh, um, uh, treatment on the patient, and the patient has agreed to, you know, some sort of treatment program to keep them off of alcohol. Uh, gabapentin, you might be kind of treating two birds with one stone because not only are you helping them through their initial phases of withdrawal, but then you can continue the drug. And and uh, studies have shown that gabapentin does decrease craving and does decrease total drinks. So again, as long as the patient isn't uh, doesn't have a contraindication for that, it would seem to me that especially if it's if it's one clinician kind of taking care of the patient all the way through, that that that, that would be the way to go. And 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 so I think it's something that that some that pharmacists, I think, can keep an eye out for, and and we can certainly talk to to clinicians about. Uh, other agents that are have been considered for withdrawal symptoms um, include carbamazepine, which actually does have pretty good data to support its use as well. Um, many of my physicians are, are are somewhat nervous to use carbamazepine. It, it's kind of a scary drug because it does it tend to have a, a litany of kind of weirdo side effects, uh, including uh, thrombocytopenia, liver liver abnormalities, stuff like that. Um, but it is especially in the short term probably a pretty safe drug to use. So if, if, again, for some reason, someone couldn't be on either gabapentin or um, a benzodiazepine, uh, carbapentin, casemine would be reasonable. Uh, there, in an inpatient setting, there's been an increasing use of phenobarbital, kind of going back to the future uh, for the treatment of, 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 uh, of alcohol withdrawal. Uh, again, remember that, that barbiturates were pretty much the drugs of choice for alcohol withdrawal and all other sorts of withdrawals in the age before benzodiazepines came on the market in the 1960s, uh, uh, barbiturates were used very commonly. Um, I still, when I first came out of school, I knew a, a couple of old-time docs who, who still kind of like to use phenobarb uh, for withdrawal. Uh, it's it's gained some purchase, I think. Um, I've certainly seen uh, some experts in the field talk about how you know that that you know uh, uh, phenobarb might be a better drug just because again it's super longer acting and and things along those lines. I'll be honest, I'm 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 a bit of a a uh, nihilist when it comes to to, to phenobarb, just largely because. I've seen some pretty weirdo side effects from phenobarb over the years. I've seen, you know, weird rashes, you know, LFT abnormalities, uh, things, uh, things along those lines. And the other thing to keep in mind is that it is a potent inducer of the cytochrome P450 system. So if you've got a patient on a lot of other medications, uh, there very well may be a pretty big drug interaction that you've got to kind of keep in mind as you're kind of going through stuff. So, so again, uh, you know, I'm not saying not use phenobarb. Um, and again, I, I realize that in, in certain areas of, of critical care medicine and emergency medicine, that it's, be, it's gaining purchase is kind of a popular thing to do. Just my personal experience with it, again, kind of as an 
an old man who remembered remember seeing phenobarb used a lot more than it used today is is that is it is it is far from a benign medication and and benzos I think still are going to be our first line agents and seem to work quite quite, quite well uh, for for the majority of these patients um, and then you know just a, a few minutes really quickly the guidelines then go into some detail talking about uh, uh, inpatient management of alcohol use disorder uh, they do mention the fact that that again if, if patients are having consistently high CWAs or they're in the intensive care unit or they have um, um, uh, the, uh, the CWA protocol is just not going to work because you, they don't speak English or something like that, that it is certainly reasonable in most patients to put them on a tapering schedule. Uh, and I've seen a variety of tapered schedules over the years. I've seen, you know, oxazepam, you know, 30 milligrams Q6 for a day, then, then you know, Q8 for a day, then BID for a day, and then stop. I've seen, you know, the same thing with Ativan. So, you, you know, there's various and sundry protocols out there that you can certainly take a look at. They do remind the importance of, of thiamine and an electrolyte uh, a repletion. Many of these patients will have profound electro electrolyte abnormalities, really low phosphorus, is really low magnesium. So you want to keep an eye out for that and, and, and make sure that that's doing fine. Uh, what happens when you've got the patient who is uh, has complicated um, uh, um, withdrawal symptoms. So now they have alcohol withdrawal seizures. And now that's a question I'm often asked by by my uh, uh, residents is, okay, they had a seizure. So now do I have to put them on on um, uh, an anticonvulsant just like you would for anybody else who has seizures? And the, and the guidelines point out the fact is is, is the answer is probably no. Uh, certainly you will help treat the seizures and the withdrawal while using benzodiazepines, but you don't need uh, for a first alcohol withdrawal seizure, you do not need um, to, to uh, um, um, uh, put them on long-term, lifelong uh, um, uh, uh, anticonvulsants like Dilantin or, or Keppra or something like that. That's just not necessary. Alcohol withdrawal delirium or the DTs is, is, is again, you know, when people are in severe alcohol withdrawal is not that unusual to see. Um, um, so, I, you know, you'll, you'll definitely see that going along again. Sometimes my residents are a little bit hazy about, you know, gee, you know, I, the patient's seeing bugs crawling all over the place and they're, we're getting very agitated. You know, I'd like to, uh, I do, can I put them on antipsychotics? I'm kind of afraid to, cause I was told that antipsychotics lower the seizure threshold. I know they're at risk. Again, the guidelines point out that, that, you know, yes, there is the slight risk for that, but if, uh, the, if you cannot control their alcohol, uh, withdrawal delirium with the, you know, the standard therapies that we've already talked talked about that, yes, an antipsychotic agents can be used as an adjunct of benzodiazepines with alcohol withdrawal, delirium, and hallucinations. And so it's something it's something you're definitely going to see. And and again, don't be afraid to use it as, as, as we kind of go along here. So, so um, you know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very in-depth, and obviously we're just going to hit, we're, we're, we're going to uh, hit the high points of the set of the guidelines. Uh, it does do a very good job talking about taking care of these patients in different, in, in different settings, uh, taking care of Pregnant women who are going through alcohol withdrawal, I can tell you that that sounds to me like an absolute nightmare. And I've, uh, I think, I, as far as I can remember, I've been spared that particular problem. Um, but that just, yeah, that sounds like an absolute uh, nightmare to me. So, um, I, you know, it, it, it's a very in-depth set of guidelines. It's free for the taking um, at the American Society of, of Clinical Addiction uh, um, uh, website. So feel free to go there and check it out. And because I think, I think, uh, especially if you're dealing with patients on an inpatient basis with this, this is a, a nice review for you and gives you some new ideas of how to treat these patients. 
patients. And if it's you're uh, an outpatient pharmacist and you're thinking, you know, hey, you know, I'm, I'm working with a population that this is this really might fit. You know, can you work with a with a local provider to help you know monitor these patients and make sure that that they don't get into trouble, don't get worse withdrawal. And then, of course, the most important thing when this is all said and done is trying to get them into into a uh, um, a treatment program that helps pharmacotherapy does play a play a role there, um, and and I, again I think uh, as pharmacists uh, we need to be kind of aware of of, of what treatments are out there for uh, opioid or for uh, alcohol use disorder such as as we said gabapentin uh, naltrexone actually has pretty good data as well you know some things to think about along those lines so we'll be back in just a second to kind of wrap up um, but here's a word from the CE Impact and again some of the great uh, um, uh, pro- programs they have. Hey, Pharmacy Podcast Nation, are you tired of searching for meaningful CE? CE Impact brings learning to you through a continuing education subscription service. That's right. No more searching. It comes directly to your inbox, and it's really good. Subscribe today at ceimpact.com to receive a hot topic CE course on the first of every month. You'll also receive bonus content and tools to implement your learning. Plus, participate in a live journal club, continuing education on the second Wednesday of every month to keep up on evidence-based information. If you want to keep searching for good CE, you might or might not find it, and you'll waste a lot of time searching. Or you can sign up today to get CE Impact's subscription service and have all the CE you need when you need it. It's that easy. Once again, go to ceimpact.com and sign up for the subscription service. Don't waste another minute. ceimpact.com. Let the learning come to you. So kind of wrapping up, uh, again, a great set of guidelines from the American Society of, 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 of Addiction Medicine uh, that really go into a extreme, you know, really good depth of, of talking about how to, how to treat with uh, alcohol use disorder with, with a particular eye to, to withdrawal. It's a very common problem you're going to see all the time, um, I think, especially if you're an inpatient pharmacist. And uh, there's some new literature out there on, on, you know, especially for adjunctive therapy, you know, gabapentin and carbamazepine, phenobarbital, things like that. That, that may not be in the toolbox of the, of, of the prescribers you're working with. And so we can be there to help, uh, you know, help them through those things, walk them through what to deal with. Uh, again, start looking at outpatient treatment uh, when, when it's appropriate. And I think, uh, uh, um, you know, making sure that these people do get into some sort of treatment, if at all possible. And that treatment often can include pharmacotherapy, which is something I think that both uh, pharmacists and prescribers sometimes forget that we do have effective pharmacotherapy for, for, alcohol, for alcohol use disorder. So... So that's it for this week. Um, hope you had a, a good uh, week. Hope this was uh, informative for you. Uh, next week, be sure back here and, and catch another uh, podcast. Uh, we'll see if we can keep our, our non-COVID run going, but, uh, but you never know. So hopefully we'll see you next week. And remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. <laughs>